This is Season 5, Episode 11, Nature Activism with Bryony Penn. Hey, Bryony, it's so lovely for you to be able to join us. It's been a very long journey to start this conversation. I'm so grateful that we've finally been able to make it happen. I'm, I'm super... Uh, feel super privileged to be here and it's great to hear maybe get some thoughts for what's happening on the other side of the world so thank you i don't know if we'll be um uh bringing a particular lightness to the conversation from australia but um i really appreciate the inspiration that's going to be coming from your side um maybe let's let's start at the beginning as you know is often the way but i'm so fascinated by your your experience of of place and your sort of journey into the world um, because it, it perhaps I'm really taken with it because it contrasts so much from my own personal journey, which was very um, um, transient and not particularly um, defined by any place in particular really. Um, and it's only been, you know, in more, much more recent years where I've, I've really come to feel deeply connected to a place and to, to really, you know, learn the, the joys and the opportunities and the privilege of, of putting roots down and, and being able to, um, you know, have nourishment from that experience. But, you, you know, you've, you've had that your whole life, haven't you? Yeah, I, I, I think it's interesting. I think um, I look back and I try and wonder why, because essentially there's this massive um, trend of globalization, which rewards at every, at every step of the way, someone to be mobile, someone to think from a global perspective, um, market things at a global level, um, you know, plan for the global community. And, um, and I, it, it is interesting why I never went that way. Um, not that I don't love the fact that we've got this, these global conversations. I think those have been very, very important, but the trend to the trend towards, um, not cherishing your home place never made sense to me. I, as early as I can remember, I was always deeply, deeply rooted to the place I grew up. And, um, and I think really a lot of the reason for that is that I had um, incredible mentors as a child who um, really bonded me to the place because they were themselves very rooted to their place. And I'm, I had grandmothers that were very uh, naturalists that were um, knew a lot about where they lived. And I had one granny um, that, you know, would do two walks a day and I would always join her and she would speak to all the animals along the way and the wildlife and the, I mean, and the, and the, and the plants. And so I think, um, I think that was just, I think I had that kind of a, of an upbringing and it, it suited me from a, from a, from my personality basis. I just was really, I, I felt very 
close to little things. I remember there was a little poem I wrote. Um, he doesn't find contentment. He seeks the wealth of kings for the greatest happiness of all is found in little things. And I wrote that out when I was about eight. And it just spoke to me because I liked little things. I was always like looking, looking for, you know, lizard, the lizards, the little alligator lizards or the ladybugs or the wildflowers. And um, so I think I was just really um, lucky to be in a place that was so rich and, uh, and wild. And I had wonderful mentors. Um, I mean, you say it suits your personality, but I, I don't know. I, I almost feel like it, it's, it's intrinsic to us as beings, isn't it? It's something maybe that we've, we've lost and perhaps people don't think it's, or certainly I didn't think it was a, a sort of a deep sort of yearning for me until I discovered or, or rediscovered it. Um, and I think it's something that we've probably lost that, um, that yearning, that um, that that need for connection, and, and the small things, and the understanding of where we are, and, and, and it's you know the impact of that is <laughs> it's probably all the downsides of the globalized world that we live in as well. Yeah, I do. I do feel that um, mentoring children from a very young age um, is a critical element it's not that we don't can't connect at a later age in fact people I still I take elder you know elderly people out who have their first connection to the natural world at 80 you know so it's nothing that's not accessible to um someone at any age but I think that really deep connection that informs your your entire philosophy is it, it really helps to have that bond at a very early age and um, so a lot of my life has been spent in education, trying to find ways to um, help people reconnect to the natural world. And I've always had like nature clubs as a mom, as a, as a community volunteer, as a, and, and even um, laterally, I, I was even took on teaching children, even though I'm not trained for the younger ones, but um, some of the little nature schools on the, on the island asked me, and, and it's a great way to stay in touch both with kind of how kids think and how, you know, where, you know, what's, 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 how are, how are children responding? And so you, you hear from them about the pressures on them not to be, um, you know, a nature kid. It's still, I mean, as a child, it was, um, I would say it was the start of a period in which it was pretty nerdy and pretty um, quaint. I remember, always remember being called quaint and old fashioned. And, and then later it became kind of more, uh, you know, uh, sort of aggressively uh, the, the language and the discrediting and, and right up into becoming a politician. You know, if you even mention nature, um, immediately would, you know, spew out the vitriol about, you know, you're, you're a witch or you're, uh, you know, like the, the, our, our sort of the tension, the, the, the tension in our society between those that like nature and those that see it as some kind of threat is 
seems to be almost as alive as it was in the medieval ages. Um, and I think that that really, there's, there's, I've done a lot of reading around it. There's a lot of scholarship around that topic. It's not, it's not uh, by coincidence that we've had to cultivate um, a cultural hatred of the natural world because if you're relying upon an extractive economy, then you have to make sure that your, your population is obediently hating the thing that it's extracting. Whereas if you're in a society that has respect and values, then you're just, you, you, you know, the last thing you would do would be teaching your, reading your children stories like Red Riding Hood, where you go out and, you know, shoot the wolf or ax it. <laughs> I mean, I, I live in a, I think the thing is, is it British Columbia, similar to, to Australia, I mean, we're, we're highly colonized um, societies. We're very recently colonized societies and we've, we've been raised um, to hate, you know, indigenous cultures and indeed indigenous people almost as much as to hate the wolves and the, and the grizzly bears and the, forest that accompany it so it's a, it's a big package of colonization to 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 develop a very healthy hatred <laughs> when mm -hmm. i say healthy <laughs> from yeah. the perspective of a colonizer um so yeah to to go against that but what i've also spent most of my life doing is writing about the fact that there has always been countercultures to this and those countercultures to colonization um come in so many different ways I mean and and I find it everywhere so what I really tried to emphasize through my life is that those of us um that see the value um you know there's a lot there's a lot and and just to, to use the the metaphor of one of the elders that I worked with for you know decades who who felt similarly you know we, I I it, it, the notion that we, you know, we are all connected, we are all interconnected, whether you see that scientifically or, or from a Western perspective or, or, or spiritually and scientifically from an indigenous perspective. Um, if you see things that way, you, you, it's, you're incapable of creating the them and the us, and you are looking at a system that's really flawed and it's based on, on this extractive industry. So how do we, how do we how do we allow people to see that the system is flawed and that it's hurting them um, by having that particular worldview and and that's that's a big one and you I know that everybody uh, that shares that that desire to try and reduce the divisiveness. Um, you know, ponders that question. And I'm sure in Australia, there's lots of you that are pondering, how do we, how do we mend this um, division in worldview? And uh, so one of the things that I've just really drawn comfort from is that is, is finding those pockets, those people, those, those organizations, those elements of society, those those kind of outliers, um, and even even the you know very very ordinary sensibilities that 
realize that, yeah, we do need to respect all things and, and we do need to uh, join up the dots because of course, you know, our whole entire survival depends upon it. And, you know, in British Columbia, I don't know if you've been watching the news, but um, we've been, we've, we've gone through, you know, to go back to the, <laughs> the Bible, which has been, had its own share of, of um, problems with worldviews around nature. Mixed, mixed. I mean, you know, um, uh, we've had these sort of biblical events from flooding and fires and pestilence and goodness knows what. So um, largely exacerbated by our, our really rapacious attack on 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 the natural world here it's just i think the uh if you look at british columbia's record we're probably the most rapacious culture on the planet um if you look at it from any lands uh probably far exceed australia we certainly exceed brazil the number of hectares per capita that we mow down annually so um it's a huge issue in british columbia um, to try and, and raise sensibilities. But I've really found that, you know, where you're engaging heart and mind, um, and, and I draw all these lessons from, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 the cultures that um, are, are and have been in place <laughs> for thousands of years. Um, yeah, I mean it's a kind of joke to say that I'm in place because my place is maybe five generations long. What do I know? Not much. Um, but I sure know that I prefer a culture of inclusivity and relationship than a rapacious colonial culture. And I mean, I come from the most colon col 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 colonized family I can think of because my ancestors that came to British Columbia were all legislators and company holders and ranchers and held, you know, made their money on off the backs of the land and of the people. So it's, it's um, sometimes I feel like uh, the ancestors have, have, uh, we, we have sort of, I have, these moments when I'm spending time with my friends who have great respect for ancestors is that, uh, you know, sometimes <laughs> we're directed to do things and, and, um, and I feel often, yeah, my, the, the sins of the fathers are visited by the, upon the, the great, great granddaughter. So might, might explain some of my drive in that respect. Um, wow, that was such a rich um, reflection. Um, so many thoughts going through my mind. I, um, just when you were talking about the connection to nature and it's it's never too late, um, I remember reading, and it always stuck with me, um, uh, um, there was a, a dad in the UK that was starting a, a sort of a forest school, a nature school, um, and he, one of the real sort of eye-opening moments for him was when um, he was taking some some kids out of his son's school 
back when he was doing traditional schooling and they, they just went to visit a, a nearby farm. They took them out of the city and, and went to the countryside. And one of the kids, um, you know, seven, eight-year-old, was asking who stuck the lemons onto the tree, which is such a um, yeah. insane um, comment, but so um, <laughs> it it's seemingly insane, but just just um, that that could that that thought could occur to a you know a seven yeah. eight year old you know just speaks to the um, distortion and. Um, the the troubles of the world that we live in, um, and something that really um has struck me about your your journey as well is um as a teacher um the the reflection that you have and uh, was it barefoot mapping that you talked. Mm. Um, I just love that concept so much. That, and I, I, I look at my kids um, with such envy that they can and love to move through the world barefooted. And, you know, it's, it's very, it's a natural state to be, you know, as humans. That's, that's how we were for the, <clears throat> the overwhelming majority of our history. And it's so sort of perverted that we have, Created that barrier, as you say, we've created so many barriers um, to make us distinct from nature and, and to make us, um, you know, fearful of nature. You know, you wear shoes so your feet don't get hurt and you don't get, <clears throat> I don't know, bitten by an ant or whatever. Well, you know, in Australia, perhaps there's some more, more greater fears, but, um, you know, my, my feet aren't tough enough to, to walk around. Um, you know, every day barefoot and, um, yeah, maybe you could just talk a little bit about that that concept and, um, you know, I'm not, I know I'm taking it very literally but, um, you know. Well, yeah, yeah, I'd be, I think, you know, one of the things that I really kind of tried to do is is look for, look for ways that connect people in, in, a, in place um, and, and if you've never sort of started, if you've never thought of that before, if it hasn't come to you naturally, then, you know, you need some kind of structure to start those first steps. So the, you know, I was trained as a geographer and <clears throat> mapping is a big part of geography. And, and, you know, strangely enough, it's also an amazing tool for colonization, where you write on maps, you're paranalyous, which means there's no one here, or there's, you know, or, or you, when you take your maps, you stick on, you know, um, uh, colors of where there's minerals and, you know, extract resources to extract. Well, I, I, I thought we should be taking that tool and mapping the things that we love or that we find or that are close to us or as a child that you love because I think that the pivotal moment for me as a child and I think this is the same for almost everybody I've met who's become you know very involved in in any of these kind of related fields of 
environmental education or activism or whatever, is that they've bonded very deeply with a place for its beauty, for its, its, its reciprocity. You know, um, I've always felt if I'm upset, you know, my mental health um, treatment is just outside my door. I just walk outside, uh, I instantly feel better. Um, and so I thought, okay, so how do we take this tool and not only have it so that people can get outside, that's the first thing, it's taking them outside. And the barefoot is like, just get out there and start walking and looking around and describing and realizing that there's a spatial component to everything everything has a place where it lives so we're not just sort of thinking about you know trees abstractly a tree lives in a very specific place and why is it that tree living there and another tree living there so it does two things one it says okay you're mapping something that you value and that's the first thing, is that we need to take control of mapping out of the hands of people that would just extract and put it into the hands of the people that would steward. And, and the thing is, is that, you know, when you're trained to be a mapper, you're expected to have this sort of exclusive skill that is only marketable to the industry. Well, I wanted to have an unexclusive skill that I shared with the community to express what they valued um, in their home place. And their home place is a place. It has a spatial component. It's got a, uh, a chronological component. Things change over time. Things change with the season. So if they, even if you can just go outside and map one little spot, one little area, take a hula hoop, throw it down on a little piece of naturally, you know, even a I mean, you know, most of us, all we've done is created lawns, but, you know, I would try and it, it also led to trying to create um, people to be curious about what used to live here before you stuck a lawn on top of this, you know, diverse, ecological, um, precious piece of earth. So the, 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 um, Barefoot mapping really spawned into all sorts of things, um, big community mapping projects. We involved, the other thing that I found was that when you're mapping, you can bring in a wide community that don't normally talk to one another and then start hopefully using it as, as a process to communicate more um, between disciplines or between sectors or between you know, adjacent landowners or, or whatever. It is, a, it is a kind of process. And what we did with our big community mapping projects is that we would bring First Nations, come and map your territory. And lo and behold, look, what you're calling this point is not, you know, I'm not, we're not calling it, you know, Isabella after some old pioneer. You're calling it Wenanich, which is, you know, this beautiful place facing Okusanich, uh, which is, is kind of where I live. It's many names for the same place. You can map place names, different cultures. Um, you can map plant communities. And I found you could take a kindergarten out and you'd say, show me where 
the like the, the plants change and you could even take them to a little mossy outcrop and they could tell you well these little this little patch of moss is darker and richer and kind of different color than this area where it's sort of drier and so they've already graphs like microclimates and different plant communities i mean that if if every single human being on earth just could grasp that one concept we would be way farther ahead for people to understand that moss acts as this incredible blanket and when it rains it slows the water down and stops the channelizing and the flooding the earth is a blanket the vegetation is a blanket so that's a concept that a kindergarten can can grasp just going out and doing their own little barefoot mapping i mean we can't even get the prime minister to understand that concept now i mean they're we have all this flooding and why do we have flooding? It's because we removed all the vegetation off the landscape. <laughs> I mean, everybody wants, now that they finally acknowledged climate change, they want to blame it in climate change entirely, but it isn't entirely climate change. It's, it's, it's because we've removed all the vegetation. Nature is resilient. Nature is far more resilient than we give it credit for. What it's not resilient is if we destroy it. <laughs> the only thing that nature isn't resilient against is complete and utter destruction. Anyway, the, the, the barefoot mapping I felt was a way of getting people out and I would do it with my university students. I would do it with um, children, yeah, kindergarten. I've done it all ages and from people that have no skills to, you know, wildlife biologists who've been studying things for, and, and it, it is a, it is a, um, it does bring people together because you can then also bring historians and geologists and the soil scientists and they each bring a particular lens. So that Western scientific, um, uh, what I call this sort of, you know, the, the ivory towers, the, the isolation of these, of these disciplines, you can bring them together in community mapping. Um, <clears throat> it's such a beautiful idea and, I just love the idea of the throwing a hula hoop down and, you know, if you just zeroed in on a hula hoop size of earth and the layers, you know, you, you dig through those layers literally or, you know, in sort of historically, um, what that could tell you about the journey of of people and of the planet would just be extraordinary and we just don't even pause to take that much you know that tiny reflection of where we are and where we've come from but hey brian i was really fascinated when you're talking about the you know the the workshops that you're doing with community and and i'm just um it's something meg and i are sort of moving through at the moment and we've we've only been where we are for five or six years but um i'm, I'm really curious about your your personal experience of, of community and what, um, how you found, you know, working in the fields that you do and, and having the, the understanding that you do and the focus that you do, how that's um, manifested in, in your experience of community and, and how you sort of move through, um, you know, that, that community building, you know, life process. Well, I think that I really, um, 
started the community mapping, um, that morphed into uh, a lot of different things. Um, and interestingly, <laughs> um, interestingly, it morphed it, at one period into, well, I'll, I'll talk about the, the more successful areas and then I'll talk about like the completely dead ends that <laughs> I, I had. Because I, I think it's instructive as well. <laughs> um, it really morphed, for me, it morphed into, um, I did a lot of writing of curriculum. I realized, you know, mm. teachers, people wanted to know, how do you, like, how do we do this? And so I spent a lot of years back in the 90s working on curriculum, um, educational documents. And that took me also into journalism. And I wrote columns for decades and, and, and journalism in very, like, you know, free newspapers, like the kind of rag that anyone would pick up um, so that it was accessible. And, and um, so the community engagement was sort of more as a, at one level. So part of me, it was like me out there doing workshops. And then I was also writing about it, you know, pre-blog days. And, um, and that was fantastic. I loved like, to, like, I ended up writing this column for nearly, I think I stopped um, at COVID. So that would be uh, from 1991 to 2020. So that's 30 years of writing a column and which I loved and it, and it, you know, it evolved into books and things like that. And that was kind of, exploring all these different avenues whether it was um a whole program called naturescape where it was tips for people on how to improve the habitat wildlife habitat in their back gardens or their you know the the balcony on their 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 apartment or whatever um there was i even did one on you know like if you were in a you know, invalid or uh, sick, and you all you had was the spiders to look at at your window, at least uh, like a sort of guide to spiders that you might see, um, just to create connection, you know, um, bird feeding, species to look out for, for bird feeding. And all of this has a strong tradition in, in the UK where I did my PhD um, so I was really borrowing from a lot of British traditions for, for connecting people to nature and bringing it to BC. Not that I was, you know, was many people doing that. It was, you know, there was a lot of people working on, on trying to bring nature to connections for people in the nineties. And it coincided with a particular political time, which was very supportive of this. And there was a lot of government programs and, and um, so that was a really big focus. And I also was working in museums. I, did, I worked on a lot of museums and big exhibits about natural history and, and our cultural connections. So, yeah, I was going down lots of different avenues. Um, but then I came up, boom, against this phenomenal political backlash. Uh, which started around 1999. I had no idea what was coming. I just didn't get it. And, um, you know, I think like many people almost kind of took it personally. It was like, wow, I didn't know anyone could be so sort of like anti somebody that 
wanted to protect the little, you know, the birds in your back garden. Like, wow, is this really a politicized um, force? So what happened is all the curriculum, one of the first things that was struck off the books um, was any nature education in our, in our public schools. Everything cut. Even, even pollination. Pollination. The basic basis for how we eat was struck off the books. And so all the resource guides that I, we'd worked on with so many teachers and so many kids. And it was, you know, it was just like these great resources, axed, shredded, gone. And this whole awful world called, you know, these sort of new, I, I think what happened is, is that as sort of resource extraction industries realized, oh my God, you know, the, the discourse is being controlled by all these sort of lefty nature hugging people that are. So, um, you know, that was the dialogue going on in my head. It's like, really? But, um, but that is how it was reflected in, in the new curriculums that were coming out, you know, learning about pollination was replaced by, um, I, I remember one famous one where there was, um, uh, it was an exercise for grade fours about where to locate your oil pipeline. Where should you take it to get it from A to B? And it was a geography exercise. <laughs> and it was asking grade fours where to locate their oil pipeline. Um, so, you know, kind of the, uh, it really, it, it really hit home how politicized we were um, about, and, and I, you know, I was very kind of naive about this initially because I just didn't consider this politicized. <laughs> just could not believe that, uh, you know, the teachings of my grannies and the elders really could be so, so, um, so politicized. So um, from throughout the 2000s, I went into television and I tried to create a sort of counter counter to this I was working even I was a political I was actually working in the legislature and reporting on this on this sort of um the the this shift uh and there was a massive period of deregulation and all that sort of thing so I went into um politics after television um and uh and that was you know that was interesting um, and, uh, so the journal, both journalism was going through massive changes and, and politics was going, I was right at the heart of this period when the, uh, sort of a voter suppression, which is now, you know, more of a household word in Canada than, but then it was unknown. And it was, a, you know, the introduction of various forms of, of, voter suppression were introduced and I got embroiled in the right in the middle of it. And uh, with all the big names that later came out about, you know, being operatives and it was, yeah, it was, it, and, and understanding kind of the forces at work and also how easy it was to control and manipulate the message, create disinformation campaigns, micro target people, um, convince people of another person's, you know, how, how people were um, politically could be discredited and how easy it was and what were the, so, and I think that that's important. 
Um, I think that we need to educate ourselves. Um, I think we can't just educate ourselves about the natural world um, to connect to it. We need to understand how we're, we have been manipulated because I think it brings empowerment. And um, for, for a while, I really wanted to start a political, like a political and ecological literacy program and just go around and talk in town halls about who we were as individuals and, um, and as a community and how we were, you know, being manipulated by forces that didn't have our best interests at heart, folks. This is not, you know, if, if we're rooted in this place, our neighbors and, you know, we all have self, uh, we all have a, a self community interest um, that is locally based. So that's a long kind of uh, thing, but that those were kind of the forms of community um, involvement that I did and that but that you know that builds up to I ran for politics in 2008 didn't I think sick uh, thankfully I didn't get in I think it would have been a terrible politician but, <laughs> um, yeah and since then I've really been trying to do a deep dive um into really understanding the the the, the uh historical origins of 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 our counter cultures. The fact that in, even in our, even whether you're looking at, at um, early Victorian or early, well, Victorian pioneers, but uh, as in the period, um, we've always had this counterculture. We've always had people that have been speaking. And, and so I feel that it's just a way, that's one way that I can, um, connect people to a past that they can be proud of. I think that's one of the things that, you know, might speak also to, to, you know, people like yourselves where it's kind of like, Oh, is there anything good to like about <laughs> our colonial forefathers and mothers? And yes, there is there, you know, again, try and understand that trying to understand the, the underpinnings of that system and then find the, the uh, really positive elements and, and show the long resistance that's always been suppressed, hasn't been, hasn't appeared in our media, hasn't appeared in, you know, mainstream thought. Um, um, you, you've had such a diverse range of trying to influence and affect change I'm, I'm really curious um what your reflections would be for others who are you know perhaps a bit you know can, can see the problems perhaps disillusioned by the the forces that you've spoken about um and you know obviously things need to be done at all level you know from from the individual and and you know, peeling back our understanding um, in ourselves um, all the way up to, you know, structural and, and policy changes that, that are the most difficult but absolutely do need to um, fundamentally change as well. I, I'm just curious, you know, where where would you encourage people to to invest their time and energy based on, on the experiences that you've had and, Obviously, everyone's different, and, and no, no two circumstances are the same. But 
um, you know, where where would you like, where do you wish you'd spent more of your energy um, and, and where are you now, I guess? Um, yeah, I think that the, you do different things at different stages of your life. That's the first answer. Um, and really listen to your intuitions about where you think you're going to be effective and have the courage. I think that's what I really mostly would say to people. Have the courage to stand by what you intuitively believe is, is, is you know, in the best interests of, of the collective. Because I think we, we, we just so many times feel we, we don't act because we, we get kind of disheartened by a society that just doesn't seem to care. Well, the first thing I'd say is I think there are a lot of people that care and there, there does need to be leadership. So if you have any of those qualities, that, that kind of penchant for being a leader, take it and, and be intuitive and be inclusive and work at whatever level you feel comfortable at. I think there are, you know, I personally think that especially, you know, young parents, you got so many things on your plate, working at the local level can be really powerful. Um, and I would, uh, because you can affect change, you can get pilots, you can get models, you can create some innovative um, things that inspire other communities to work at, because it does feel just, but at the, uh, on the other hand, you know, I, what I did experience at the federal level when I was running federally, politically, is that, um, you know, if, I, if I'd been a little bit more sophisticated and understood about these kind of historic structures and systemic problems, I might have been able to survive. <laughs> so if you feel like if people, there's people that feel that they could have a role in a, in a, at a federal level, go in there with your eyes wide open, really go deep into what are the you know, really understand the concept of wedge issues and and uh, micro-targeting and voter suppression and blow it open, blow it wide open. Talk about divide and conquer. So I think that, you know, I, I just want to give people confidence that if I, I truthfully think that, you know, all the avenues that I went down were all needed. I I moved around a lot because I would, I would, give up because I would just think, oh, no one wants that. <laughs> you know, all your work would just be kind of like blown out. I remember when the, the television company gave me this, they said, you, your show is no longer relevant. We don't believe that in environment and culture and um, women's issues, or I can't remember what else they said, those aren't relevant to the mainstream society. And I remember thinking, really? <laughs> You're kidding. Um, yeah, I just wish I'd had a bit more understanding of where I was in in history. I always felt that that there was this urgency, um, and I wish I'd had. I wish I could have taken just one more and just had the ability to to see the context of the time. But I and I, I so my kind of parting parting comment really is is. You know, we are at, you know, we're code red. 
Um, I think every one of us has a contribution at whatever scale and at whatever way, but we do also have to keep our connection light and, and beautiful and go out and, and reconnect to the natural world. And, and if you don't have access to it, it's still a beautiful thing to try and even bring a tiny bit back because you'll get so much. It just feeds your soul. And it's, it's, it's really depressing times. It's hard to, it's hard to, um, it's hard to keep sustained hope right now. And I just was working up in Bella Coola and, and with the elders who were, and I'm working right now on a really simple little task, but I love it. I, I do graphic facilitation for them when they describe what they're feeling and hope and, and concerns and issues. And these are people with ties like stretching way back and they've gone through incredible, you know, the same kind of impacts that, that, you know, the indigenous people of Australia have gone through. And um, I was asking one of the elders, I said, um, what, you know, what are your th thoughts about the future? And he said, well, in my language, there, there is no word for no hope. There's just no, there's no way of, even expressing it. And, and also it's really important for our, our health and our being that we, we don't bring negativity to our conversations. And it's, it's a part of our training to, to get rid of the negativity. And when he said it, I just started crying because I realized, my God, we have so many words that are negative and no hope and blah. And I mean, I think that, I think that it is, it is, it, it just helped me realize, okay, I'm just going to actually work on my language. I'm going to really try and communicate that there is still things that we can do. We can do them to the best of our skills. And if we don't try, um, then we'll, it'll make us sick. And another elder who I worked with for years, and, and we, we wrote a book together called Following the Good River. His name is Wahed. Um, he invited everybody to step into this magic canoe. Um, he knew more than anyone the, the difficulty that's ahead of us. And, you know, together we're just going to have to paddle together. And, and, our, and our destination is the same, which is the survival of the human and, and all beings on this planet. That, that little destination. Um, that's so beautiful. And, and um, your book, you, you do have another book, Stories um, from the Magic Canoe, which is so beautiful as well. And um, I encourage, you can get it in Australia and I encourage everyone to find that. Um, Brian, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm, I'm just so grateful that, um, you know, this has kind of been a year in the making. So thank you. Um, for 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 coming um for coming together today and um and and thank you for all, all the work that you're doing as well you too good luck <laughs> <laughs>